It's good to be with you. It's a joy to uh, serve at North Wake in any capacity. My wife and I and our family, we've been here for seven years, almost eight years now. We are, my name is Benjamin, my wife is Ashley. We have uh, four kids. We're A, B, C, D, E, F because we're OCD like that, which means Ashley, Benjamin Camp, Dawson, Emma Fletcher. Um, and yeah, it was kind of on purpose, but it was a long story to tell you later. Uh, but we've been here for almost eight years, and we are deeply, deeply grateful to the ministries of North Wake and the leadership uh, of, the, of the pastors and the elders here. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We have a relatively lengthy passage this morning, uh, verses 1 through 18. And then when you get there, if you'll stand with me. We'll read this passage out loud together. I think it's good for us to sit under the uh, teaching and especially even the reading of the word. A few weeks ago, I was in a, 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 different, a different worship service, very different context and different uh, Christian tradition. And I was reminded, I was really taken back by how much scripture was read over us during the time of that liturgy. And I deeply appreciated that. I think it's good for us. So we'll read this aloud together and then we'll pray and jump in. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the actual form of those realities, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? Since the worshipers, once purified, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Stop right there. Listen to that again. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Verse 4, read together. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, You did not want sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, See, I have come. It is written about me and the volume of the scroll to do your will, O God. After he says above, you did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. And by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering, time after time, the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified." The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he had said, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. He adds, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you great praise for your kindness to us, especially in the person of Jesus. 
We thank you for your word that instructs us in life. Father, we praise you for the opportunity to worship together this morning. Would you give us grace and have mercy on us that we might see clearly and hear clearly your word taught to us. And then, Father, might you give us grace that we would walk faithfully by your spirit, walking with you, loving you, and loving others forever. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> As Daniel mentioned, we are, uh, we've been in Hebrews for about six months now. And, and some of you are feeling that, that six months thinking, yeah, this is a, um, it's been a, been a bit of a thick six months. In fact, in our small group time this past Wednesday night, one, one girl in our small group, as we were discussing this passage, said, why is it so hard? Why, why is Hebrews so difficult? And I suppose that there are a number of reasons for that. In our passage this morning, though, there is really, I want to summarize it this way, that Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, focuses on this point, remembering a superior sacrifice. Remembering a superior sacrifice. I want to start by asking you a rather quirky question. How good is your memory? By the way, this, I've noticed that this crowd's a little bit older than the first crowd, so that's a funnier question now than it was in the first hour. Uh, how good is your memory? And, and for the purposes of, of our passage this morning, I might ask it this way. How good is your rememberer? How good is your rememberer? Memories, um, they have a, a vital part to play in our life, even if we don't realize it. Our, our ability to remember as human beings. This is something unique and special, I think, about the way that God has built us um, as human beings. That we are able to remember things. And memories, sometimes they're very sweet memories, like weddings and birth of children and high school for some of you. And then sometimes there are really bad memories like weddings and birth of children and high school. I'm just kidding, I'm really. There are also very funny memories. Sometimes there are these stories, you know, the funniest, oh, let me tell you this funniest thing that's ever happened. Let me tell you about this. We love to rehearse these stories and they get funnier every time. We t- they also change every time we tell them too, but they get funnier every time we tell them. In fact, Just to sort of resource your own memory for a second, turn to someone next to you, take 20 or 30 seconds, and tell them the funniest thing that's ever happened to me was, and then fill in the blank, but make sure it's appropriate for this context. So the funniest thing that ever happened, take 20 or 30 seconds, go. I love how that goes because it starts as sort of an awkward, subtle roar and then it moves into actual laughter and then now you're remembering and you're kind of back in that moment. And I do that on purpose because that, that is really what our memory does. It actually, it can take us back to those places and it can bring them into the now and we're able to share those with other people and they can almost participate in those events. Sometimes our memory eludes us. Whether we're young or old, sometimes we just, especially as we have more and more responsibilities, um, we need reminders of things. We have calendars that remind us to, uh, to attend a meeting or to pay our bills or our favorite TV shows. Some of you have reminders set on your television 
to, that your show comes on tonight or sometime this weekend. You will not forget it. Or your television is going to remember to record that, and then you're going to have a reminder set two days later to remember to go watch that thing that your television recorded. We have all of these kinds of things in place to help us remember. Even things like taking medication. Uh, so I came across a video recently of a girl that a girl sent to her mom reminding her to take some medicine that she hadn't previously had to take and just wanted to make sure that she took it. And she, she did so in a funny way. If you guys can show that video. <laughs> Snapchat has made everyone's life better. I don't know if y'all realize that. And some of y'all are wondering, isn't that his wife? And I can neither confirm nor deny whether that was my wife. But if you find out, if you find out that I'm living in the leader box basement, you'll know, you'll know why, I think. <laughs> Memories also can be very, very sad. Uh, our ability to remember can sometimes haunt us. Sometimes those memories come as a result of perhaps friends or loved ones that we've lost. Um, and we think, you know, we remember the pain of that death. We remember the pain of losing that person. But at the same time, it's, it's the very same faculty of our mind that we can remember the precious times that we had with those people. Uh, in fact, with respect to memory, I, I can't think of many things more sad than to watch uh, elderly people most of the time, elderly people who have been afflicted with disease and they can't remember their family anymore. I just can't, there are few things that have, uh, that have just wrecked me more than seeing uh, an elderly person, say an elderly grandmother or elderly mother, who when her husband of 60 years walks into the room and she doesn't know who he is and she fights him and she works, she fights against him because she thinks that he's an enemy of some sort. Or her children walk into the room and she can't recall her, their names and she can't recall the times and the meals that they shared together, the holidays that they enjoyed together. There's something about memory that actually is a very vital part of who we are as human beings. It's even worked its way into our ordinary. Imagine if you, if you had no access to your rememberer, you, you went back to work tomorrow and you wouldn't know where to go. You, went, you may wake up not even know that you're supposed to go. You couldn't recall your spouse's name, your children's names. You couldn't remember what tasks you were responsible for. Well, what's the point in this? The, the ability to remember is in fact a gracious gift from God himself. He has built us as creatures who are supposed to remember. And in fact, remembering plays an important role in our walk with Christ. Remembering appropriately plays an important role in our walk with Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, calls us to remember a superior sacrifice. A superior sacrifice. In the previous chapters, before we got to where we are now in Hebrews chapter 10, this, this great sermon that we call Hebrews, it's, it's a, uh, just almost as if this, this f- phenomenal, articulate preacher has put this thing together, speaking specifically to Jewish people, speaking specifically uh, to, to those of the Jewish community in the first century, helping them to understand, he's providing a, a thick and tight argument for them, helping them to understand that by the time he gets to the end of this case that he's making, They cannot believe anything other than, they can draw no other conclusion than the fact that Jesus is greater. He's pointing them to that fact. And in the process, he has argued that Jesus is superior to some of these other things. Daniel mentioned a few before already. Jesus is superior to the angels in Hebrews chapter 1. He's superior to Moses in chapter 4. That's a big thing, by the way. 
You're talking to these particular people, greater than Abraham or greater than Moses. You could be killed for saying something like that. And this one is pointing to Jesus and saying, even better than Moses. He's saying that Jesus is a superior high priest, even greater than Aaron or this curious character called Melchizedek in chapters 5 through 7. Jesus oversees a superior ministry. By virtue of his own priesthood, he oversees a greater ministry than the ministry that they have sat under in these high priests who live and then die, and then another one lives and then dies, and another one lives and dies, and Jesus is a greater, a more superior high priest to them. That Jesus has ratified a more superior covenant. We saw in chapter 8 as well, this long, very lengthy quotation from Jeremiah 31, the longest Old Testament quote in the whole of the New Testament. That Jesus oversees that covenant that's graciously given by God. It's a superior covenant. And now Jesus, not only greater than the angels and Moses and the other high priests, overseeing a superior ministry and a superior covenant, but he is a superior sacrifice. With this passage, we come to the end, in fact, of this theological argument that the sermon is making. After we move past this place, it's exhortation to Christians to live a particular way, to remain faithful to the end, and so on. We get to the end of this argument that he's making, and I know some of you are really thankful that we're at the end of some of that. But now we see that in these previous ten chapters, we, we as well, not just as first century readers, but we as well, can draw no other conclusion than that Jesus is greater. Let's look together. Our passage breaks pretty easily into three parts. The first part is repeated sacrifice as a reminder of sins. Repeated sacrifice as a reminder of sins. I'm going to read back through the first four verses. And as I do that, look for language that points to repetition or points to reminding or points to remembering. Look for that as I read verses 1 through 4 again. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the actual form of those realities. It can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices that they continually offer year after year. Do you hear the repetition? Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? Since the worshipers once purified would no longer have any consciousness of sins. In other words, they couldn't remember. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. What the author is pointing to here is referring specifically to what we typically call the sacrificial system. And apparently this system, what what the author is arguing is that this system isn't sufficient. In fact, quite clearly, because Jesus is superior to all of this, this system is in fact inferior. But what's the problem with this system? It's that it's inferior. It doesn't measure up to the demands of God himself. It's not good enough for what God requires of sin. And this notion of sin is important because in order for us to understand what's going on with this system, we have to remember what this system is responding to. This, this system has been, has been installed, it's been put in place because of disobedience to God himself. Because of sin. Sin committed against The eternal and holy God is something that's not taken away by animal blood. It's something that's not remissed as a a result of uh, a, a sinful human high priest, merely human high priest, walking into a temple made with hands and being able to satisfy forever the sins of the people. Why does it not work? Because sin is more serious than that. And this system is not sufficient to forever take away that sin. This is an inferior temple. 
with a mere human priest who himself has to make sacrifice for his own sin, who walks in with animal blood on his hands. In other words, this is a temporary and finite acceptable sacrifice, but only for a year. Only for one year. Why? Because an imperfect sacrifice doesn't produce the perfection required by God. That which is inferior does not satisfy that which is superior. Inferior sacrifices that we see here, these are annual reminders of sin. This memory thing, it continues to jog the memory of these, of these Hebrew people who have practiced this for now some 1,500 years. This is not something they've just been doing for a short time. They have been practicing this day after day after day, year after year after year for approximately 1,500 years. And it's a reminder of sin for the blood of bulls and goats cannot take care of this. It cannot take away sins. So let's reflect on that for a second. There are two things I want to mention about this. The first is, this is a question also that that even came up in our small group time. And I want to discuss it very briefly, but often, I I suspect anyway, we read a passage like this and we say something like, but didn't God give that system? Didn't God give that system? And if God gave it to us, why does it not seem to work? Why would God have given us something? Why would God have given his people something that doesn't work? I want to say a few things about that. To be quite frank with you, that's a bigger question than we really have time to tackle in our our time this morning. But let me approach it in just a couple of ways quickly. First of all, this system that is given to us by God is in and of itself, what we call the law, is in and of itself a gracious gift from God. Part of what these Hebrew people, these first century people are remembering, this is the way that this thing has worked its way, this this system, this tradition has worked its way into the regular and routine remembering of the people. And it does the same for us, by the way. But as it reminds them, it it reminds them of where they've come from. Why are they in this situation to begin with? And it, it recalls to them first that God created all things very good, but then something happened. Our first parents, who the Bible refers to as Adam and Eve, they chose for the first time in history not to obey and to believe the word of God, but to believe and to obey the word of his enemy, someone else. And in that process, sin then enters into the world. And that sin entering into the world immediately then strikes fear in the heart of the whole of creation. How will this God respond? How will this good God who's given everything that these people need, he's given them everything that they need. He's walked with them. He's talked with them in the garden. He has provided them. He's even giving them responsibilities over the whole of his creation, and yet they disobeyed him. He's given them everything. They disobeyed. For us parents, that sounds really familiar to us. God has given everything, and they bit him in return. And now we find ourselves, as we read through this great story, at least for me, on pins and needles, how will this God respond? And what we learn about this God is that this God is a compassionate and gracious God. He is slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing and rebellion and sin, yet he will not leave the guilty unpunished. This is a beautiful thing about this good and gracious God. He gave everything. We disobeyed. How did he respond? He owed us nothing. But because he is good, he continued to give. He's gracious and he's patient. He didn't dismiss sin. 
He hasn't winked at this injustice. In fact, he is, he is sure. In fact, this very issue kicks off further the next part of the mission of God where now God is at work destroying the thing that has broken his world. Why did God give us this law? I would ask, why did God give us anything? Why did God continue a relationship with us at all? We might also think, I don't understand why God gave us something that's insufficient. This thing that's insufficient is what's pointing us to the greater and the more superior thing that once and for all satisfies. It's not as though this law was broken. It was never intended to make forever atonement for our sin. This thing was intended to point us to the lawgiver and point us back to the one who will ultimately come through and fulfill the law, who is Jesus himself. We oftentimes tend to hear this dichotomy between law and then gospel, the beauty and the goodness of the gospel, in contrast to what we tend to feel like is the badness of the law. And I don't think it's that way at all. Jesus clearly fulfills that law, but the law in and of itself is still a gracious gift from God. And how we approach God with respect to these why God questions is really important. Listen close to me, if you will. The church has taught us for hundreds of years that we don't approach God on our own terms. We don't approach God, even when we don't understand what we may be going through, we don't understand why this has happened, why that has happened. We may not understand how God has worked in history, and we may not understand how he works now. But when we approach God, we don't approach God in this way, saying, God, I'll believe if and when I understand. We come to God in submission to him acknowledging that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we come to God saying, God, I believe so that I may understand. And we cross this threshold of faith, being born again into the family of God and accepting the world as God has built it, and we are thankful for it. We receive his gracious gift. We receive his kindness, even when we don't understand. Memory continues to play an important part for his people, reminding them frequently before he commands his people. I'm I'm talking specifically about the Old Testament people of God, the Hebrews and the lineage of Abraham, that he reminds them frequently before he commands them. Exodus chapter 20, for example, this is the Ten Commandments passage. But before God gives a command, he reminds them that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now you shall have no other gods before me. And then you get to the fourth commandment in verse 8 of chapter, chapter 20. He says, and remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 and also Mark chapter 12. The great commandment in Mark when the scribe comes to Jesus and he says, what's the most important commandment? I always hear that as, what's the most important thing about living in your world? Almost as if the scribe wants to hear if Jesus answers correctly. And Jesus responds this way. He answers by quoting first Deuteronomy chapter 6. But he doesn't go first to the commandment. He goes first to, listen Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In other words, remember this God. Remember who he is. Remember what he's done for you. And then we push forward in obedience and in worship. God reminds us of who he is and what he's done before he gives us such instruction. Not only to these people, these first hearers of this text and the way that that this system, this law has worked its way into their memory. Not only what's behind them in terms of the creation and the fall. Not only where they are as they find themselves part of the chosen line of Abraham. 
And that as this law was given to Moses and Moses mediates it to this people and that they are to continue this system of sacrifice and so on, it doesn't stop there. Actually, this also encourages them to remember a a particular future. Our memory doesn't work just in one way. We don't just go backwards and then to now. We also, the, the revelation of God has given us, has called us to remember even that which is ahead and that which is in the future. We remember into this future, and the way that we do that actually affects the way that we live. For these first hearers and for those prior to Christ, they remembered not just the monotony of this over and over daily and annual ritual and sacrifice and offering, but they also remembered if they were approaching this rightly with contrite heart, they approached God on his terms. And they also remember that this God whom we are sacrificing to and whom we are offering to, this God has promised that he will send one, a Messiah, who will crush the head of Satan. They didn't just remember the past, but they also remembered into the future God's promise. And indeed, God was faithful towards that promise. The second part of our passage speaks to the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice. The superiority of Jesus' sacrifice. Look back at verse 5 through 7. Therefore, as he was coming into the world... He said, this is quoting Psalm 40 uh, as if Jesus himself were saying it. It says, You did not want sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. And then I said, See, I have come. It is written about me in the volume of the scroll to do your will, O God. He starts out in this passage by saying, God did not want sacrifice. Listen to that. God did not want sacrifice? God did not want sacrifice. This shouldn't surprise us. Several times, especially in the Old Testament, the scriptures are clear to us that God's ultimate desire, his ultimate want, was not the blood of bulls and goats. His ultimate want was faithful and joyful obedience from his people. Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8, is what we've just quoted. You did not want sacrifice and offering. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Listen also to Psalm 51, 16 and 17. You did not want a sacrifice or I would give it to you. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and a humbled heart. And then listen to Amos chapter 5. This is when God is furious with his people. Not only because of their disobedience, it's worse than that. Not only are they not faithfully walking with him, but they are taking advantage of the people around them. They're exploiting the people around them. Injustice runs rampant, yet they continue to show up to their temple. They continue to offer these sacrifices despite their sin outside the temple walls, despite their despicable life outside the temple walls. They continue to show up and God blisters them for it. He says this, I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened calves. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but instead let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. Yet in God's wisdom... This is the beauty and the great irony of this whole thing. Listen close. In God's wisdom, 
this thing that we call sin that demanded a, resp- a response from God and that from Genesis 3 forward, the mission of God has been executed and pushing forward to destroy this thing. This very thing called sin takes on an interesting, what I'll call a co-starring role in God's great drama of redemption. As something that was for a time to be dealt with year after year, in God's plan of redemption, sin does not win. It may feel as though, it may even look as though, that because these sacrifices have to be offered every year, that somehow sin is stronger than those sacrifices, that sin is more powerful than those sacrifices. And perhaps those insufficient sacrifices, sin is stronger than those. However, God turns the table on the enemy here. Perhaps the enemy, perhaps sin itself, has this notion that it it caught God off guard as Christ is there on the cross. It looks like sin wins, but when in reality, God has turned the table on this enemy. And according to 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen? But this is something that could not be accomplished by an imperfect priest. This could not be accomplished by a mere human priest showing up in a temporary tabernacle with animal blood to offer to God as his best. This could only be accomplished by the perfect high priest, unstained by sin, who didn't arrive with the blood of another, certainly not the blood of an animal, but this high priest arrived with his own blood. This priest was also the sacrifice. Think about how these first hearers have to hear this. All they've known for 1,500 years is that that high priest has to make atonement for his own sin, and then by, by, by an animal he has to come in, and we have a priest, and we have a sacrifice, and then we'll do it all again next year. And this priest comes in and he says, I don't need a sacrifice. I am the sacrifice. I don't need another priest. I am the priest. I don't need other blood. I've brought my own. Spotless, sinless. This Christ Our king served as both priest and sacrifice, and yet this king reigns forever. This priest lives forever. This sacrifice satisfies forever. This king, priest, sacrifice reigns and lives and satisfies forever so that there is never, ever again a need for atonement. And with this, the preacher of this great sermon, he tells us that he takes away the first to establish the second. He took away this first way of doing things. This insufficient system, gracious though it was, given to us by God, was only a shadow of the real thing to come. It was pointing us towards graciously. It was was provoking our own memory to remember that God will keep his promises and eventually he will break the very thing that broke his world, namely sin. He takes away the first to establish the second and by this will we have been made acceptable through the offering of the blood blood and the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The old priest says they executed the sacrificial system. The author of Hebrews here reminds us, look at verse 11 and 12. These old priests, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. Do you hear that repetition? This monotony, what almost this emptiness of day after day after day after day after day. They remember their parents who were part of this. Their grandparents were part of this. Their great-grandparents. All the way back for generations, this has gone on. And the priests stand there offering these sacrifices. But, verse 12, this man 
after offering this after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, he doesn't stand any longer. But this man sat down at the right hand of God. Consider how the first hearers might have heard this. Because what we're talking about is we're tampering with tradition for them. I'm just curious, have you ever been in a context where someone started meddling with tradition and it got a little murky? It happens a lot. It happens in churches, it happens in families, it happens in cultures. All of a sudden, these first hearers, for generations, their calendar, their daily task revolved around these feast days, these sacrifices that were given by God, daily rituals, the greatest of which was this annual day of atonement. Daily and yearly, such was their custom. Think about how entrenched this was in their life. Have you seen Fiddler on the Roof? The tradition. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, there's a reason why this has such a deep hold of them. Sorry, Daniel, I'll do better next time. Maybe you should sing that next time. This, this sort of tradition, by the way, doesn't go away very easily. These kinds of traditions, they, they've worked their way into our ordinary, such oftentimes we don't even realize it. Imagine that someone came to you and said, this, this calendar that you keep where you go and you visit family on the holidays, uh, and you, you go... No, we, we tend to go to Mississippi where we're from and we go to grandmother and granddaddy's house on Christmas Eve. We've done it now for 39 years in a row. And if all of a sudden some preacher showed up and said, hey, you know what? Don't do that anymore. That wouldn't go well. And all of a sudden this preacher is showing up and he's telling them, 1,500 years, some 1,500 years you have done this and it's of deep religious significance to you. But I have good news for you. You don't have to do that anymore. For some of them it's hard to hear that as good news. Why is that? Perhaps it's not tradition itself that's the problem. But perhaps it's when we become so beholden to traditions, even significant ones, that are inferior to Christ. It's hard for us to recognize. It's hard for us to hear and to see just how good Jesus is in light of that. No doubt it was hard for these hearers. And no doubt in our own ordinary lives, daily lives, we struggle with the same things. Tradition orders our lives. It, it regulates our calendars. It works its way into our daily routines and into our ordinary. Traditions take something of ultimate importance, or at least that we believe to be of ultimate importance and primary, and then it organizes everything else around it. Tradition enshrines that ultimate thing. It enshrines it and then creates an entire culture around that thing that regulates our life and points us in a particular direction. Do you have things like that? Perhaps you're thinking, Benjamin, that sounds an awful lot like idolatry. And indeed, it is related to idolatry, but it's more than that. Because idolatry is that ultimate thing. The tradition that we allow to, to enshrine that thing and then to create this culture around it, that's what we get wrapped up in. And all of a sudden, even if we don't realize it, start looking back through your calendar, looking back through how you spent your time, look back through your checkbook, look back at what you've done for the last decade, and, and you tell me, what is your tradition and what's at the end of it? Is it, in fact, the superior priest and sacrifice Jesus? Or is it something else? For these first hearers, even perhaps with good intentions, they enshrined the law itself as opposed to worshiping the lawgiver, the one who in his grace was sending the one who would fulfill that law. 
I want to submit to you that there is a greatest tradition. What I call, and I talk to my students, I call it the capital T tradition. The capital T tradition of the apostles. This faith once for all delivered in the saints, Jude tells us about. This good news of the life of Jesus, his death and his burial and his resurrection. This is the tradition that ought to order our lives, to regulate our calendar, to make its home at the center of who we are. And that everything else that we do in every place that we are, in our work, in all of our vocations, in our family life, in our communities, and in our neighborhoods, regardless of what you do, our tradition is ordered around the centerpiece enshrined who is Jesus, the superior sacrifice, the superior priest. And then finally in our passage, we also remember the future. A newer and better future. Look back at verse 13. He who is Jesus is now awaiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Even the Holy Spirit testifies to us about this. For after he had said, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds this, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. The last part of our passage calls us to remember a particular kind of future. First, that Jesus awaits triumph. This brilliant quote from Psalm 110.1, that Jesus himself is waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. It's not just that Jesus has defeated sin, and indeed, and indeed he has, but it's this vivid imagery that he props his feet on top of it as if to say, what now? I win. You don't win. God wins this. He also has made one offering forever, securing our sanctification. And now by his grace and because of this covenant that he told us about long ago and that now has been ratified for us, his law is no longer written on stone tablets for us to carry around. But his law is written on our hearts. And we are filled by his spirit, given grace and by his grace to walk in the love and the light of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then perhaps the greatest irony of this passage is that while we are the ones being reminded to remember we're also told that God himself is forgetting something that while we are reminded to remember we're told that God himself is forgetting something God says I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts and then he says and now while there is forgiveness of these there is no longer an offering for sin. How can this be? Is it true that the perfect and all-powerful, all-knowing God actually forgets everything? It's, it's quite a sort of a theological conundrum that we might think through. Is it in fact that the one that we proclaim to be all-knowing or what we call omniscient, does he just hit delete on a massive part of his memory and no longer remembers our sin? He has no ability to remember that. I actually don't think that that's what he's, what's going on. I think it's much better than that. God's new covenant with us, his people, was ratified by this superior high priest who also served as the sacrifice. He was the one who became sin for us. God's commitment to us is to remember not our sin any longer, but to remember his son who became sin for us. In other words, it seems to me that while Jesus is Better than Moses, better than the angels. He oversees a superior covenant. He's ratified this for us. He has a superior ministry. 
He's a superior high priest. He's the superior sacrifice. This same Jesus, strange though it may sound, is also a superior sin. Not sinner. Hebrews is very clear. This, this Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. But at the same time, as Paul informs us, because God turns the tables in this story on his enemy and makes his own son, God, Jesus becomes sin on our behalf in the process breaking the thing that has broken his world. Jesus is a superior, not sinner, but he is the superior sin, so that now when God looks back in his own memory, he need not remember our sin anymore because our own sin stands in the shadow of the cross of the one who became sin on our behalf. Praise God for that. God's commitment is to remember his son who became sin and who cleansed us by his blood. And by remembering him who became sin and who defeated sin, there is no need to remember our own. So why do we allow ourselves to remember it so often? Believer, if you have been born again of the Spirit of God, you are forgiven. I don't know what haunts you. I don't know what it is in your past or perhaps something that you were related to. If I were to ask you now not to turn to your neighbor and share the funniest story, but if I were to say, tell the thing that you are most ashamed of, that'd be very hard for you. In fact, you would say, I don't want to talk about that. I don't even want to remember it. Then why do we continue to beat up ourselves over these sins? God remembers your sin no more. He's not reminding you of your sin. Put it away from you. What are we called to remember? We remember the same thing that God remembers, the superior sacrifice of his son Jesus who became sin for us. We also look forward, remembering the future. In the same way the Old Testament people of God built into this system of, of repetition and reminding, built into this system, it called forth for them to remember that God would keep his promise and send Messiah. And indeed, we find ourselves in between these times of Jesus' first coming and his second coming as we, show, as we go about our regular daily lives and we offer our own lives as a daily sacrifice to God. We offer our bodies as living sacrifice and we come together to worship. Part of what that does in our memory is it provokes us not only to remember the past and this great story of God and how this, this great uh, story of redemption that God has executed and that he has already uh, secured for us in Christ, but now we look forward to that beautiful and glorious return of Christ. Just as Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God and is awaiting now for his enemies to be made his footstool, we too look forward to that day. And it informs our life. This is why we live as a different kind of people with the hope of the glorious return of Jesus. Despite our circumstances, despite our difficulties, despite how much we may not even like our, our situation in life, we remember the future. In fact, all of our life now is lived just as Jesus told his disciples in the upper room at the Last Supper, do this in remembrance of me we too do all of life in remembrance of him. This superior sacrifice, this forever king. We love God. We love God's world, joining our lives to his mission, praying all the while, Father, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For now, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin because there need not be another sacrifice. As we close, believers, 
I want to remind us all to remember the future. Not only the future, we remember what's behind us, the great sacrifice of Christ, and we also remember how now we enshrine that thing and let that become the great tradition of our life, and we order everything in that direction. At the same time, perhaps there are some of you here who have never believed in Christ. I want to exhort you as well to remember the future, that Jesus is returning. And that will be a wonderful and glorious day, but for some a dreadful day. And I beg you to be counted among the faithful that Christ has invited you to believe in his superior sacrifice, his superior priesthood. Trust him and be born again and be found among the faithful at the return of Christ. This is the great hope and the glory that we have as we worship and live for our great King. Let's pray together. Father, we love you so much. We are grateful for your sacrifice, for your gift to us, especially in Jesus. And that despite our rebellion, that despite our sin, because you are gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, you reached out and made a way for us to be restored to you and to live forever with you. And now, Father, would you give us grace that we would not remember our sin over and over, but instead, Father, that we would remember the sacrifice of your Son, Christ. And that we might be faithful in every area of our lives, at every time and in every place, that we might be faithful to sing the song of the Christ who reigns. That it would affect our decision-making. It would affect the way that we live every part, even of our ordinary lives, how we do our jobs, how we love our spouses, how we parent our children, that all of this is now enshrined in this great tradition of the gospel of Jesus so that we might indeed be a light to your world and that your kingdom may come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.